Wow, what a journey that we're on. It's, 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 I want to say welcome to those that are watching online because we are a church in many locations today. We are one church in many locations today. And one of the things that's been enjoyable about being online uh, only for a while, one of the few things, the only things, is being able to see how many people are able to be a part of that. And one of those is is uh, one of a pastor friends, a church that uh, that kind of, I guess, we helped start, and that was sending um, Pastor Samuel and Nellie back to Peru. And there is a a point of grace church that is in uh, is in uh, Lima, Peru, and they join us every morning uh, at nine a.m. and then they have their service at eleven a.m. So, there. If you're watching online, please comment online to to Pastor Samuel and Nelly as they continue to pastor down there. So, again, we're all so scattered and all over the world at the same time. We are still together, and hopefully we will be more and more together in the days ahead. Uh, this is a global crisis. No, no, nothing new there, nothing earth shattering there. Uh, this is a tragedy. It's a tragedy that uh, we are getting to live in. We are getting by the sovereign will of God to live in this tragedy. In this season, in this crisis, what we do with this tragedy, what we do in this crisis is up to us. It's interesting to look back over history and to see how the church has responded in time. In the third century, there was a plague that swept across Rome. 25% of Rome actually experienced death in the city of Rome because of um, because of this, again, whether it was a pandemic or it was just a local uh, 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 problem right there in Rome or throughout the Roman Empire, it was incredible. And uh, Dicinius of Alexandria actually wrote about it and how that people, the non-Christians, were putting the people out in the street left to die and take for themselves, except for the Christians in the early church in that very third century. They were actually bringing them in and caring for them. So they even noticed that there was a difference in the Christian response then. Then you skip over to the fourth century and you find that in 362, there was another plague that swept across the Roman empire. And Julian writes about that, writes a letter. And in that letter, he literally says, calls them the Galileans, which you're referring to the Christians. The Galileans or the Christians cared for theirs. This is what he said. He says, for it is a disgrace that the impious Galileans Christians support not only their own poor, but us as well, ours as well. So there is a, there is a different mindset when it comes to the Christian response in a day of a pandemic. I wonder as the baton is being passed to us in this pandemic, what will we do with it? How will we handle it? How will we react to it? You skip on into the late uh, uh, ages, the late middle ages, whenever uh, another uh, bubonic plague sweeps across the land and you find again, the church rising up. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther in the uh, middle, late Middle Ages, when, when this uh, bubonic plague reached Wittenberg, Germany. And when it reached the German, uh, when it reached the German soil in 1527, many people left the city, but Martin Luther stayed. Martin Luther stayed with his family and he continued to serve amongst the people who were suffering from the plague. In that he lost, ends up losing his daughter Elizabeth. 
to the, to the plague. But he says this statement. And now to, as you read this statement, and I'm going to put it on the screen, as you read this statement, notice how his response and the tension that he is carrying is the same tension that we are carrying in our response today. He says, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. We must start with prayer, right? Go back to last week's message. How do you deal with crisis? You deal with it by the choice, and you deal with it by, by the choice of choosing your attitude, and you do, deal with it through prayer. And so it starts with prayer. Then I shall fumigate or sanitize, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. Wear a mask, is translated in today's language. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed social distancing, in order to not become contaminated and thus, uh, uh, perchance, inflict and pollute others and so cause their death in result of my negligence. But notice the next statement. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above and see this See this such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. We have COVID-19 that has been handed to us. The baton of what we do in that COVID-19 is now up to us. What are we going to do in this world? We can totally separate ourselves or we can be wise, not foolhardy. But at the same time, if we see... Notice that last statement. If our neighbor needs us, how will we respond? How will we respond? The baton is passed to us. There is a biblical model for neighboring, okay? There is a biblical model, precedence that is given. If you go to the third century, if you go to the fourth century, if you go to, to the bluebonic plague in the middle late ages, you will find again and again, if you go to the Spanish flu in the 1900s, you will find the church rising up in a very unique way, meeting the needs of the community of the people. Where does this come from? Where does this neighborly process come from? It was Jesus himself quoting in the Old Testament multiple times and throughout the New Testament is this little phrase. And I want to read to you from Luke chapter 10. We'll be in Luke 10 today so you can find that passage. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So I want to say again, there is a biblical model There is a biblical standard for what it means to be a neighbor. Martin Luther said, if my neighbor is in need, I don't care if I'm facing uh, a threat of life myself, I will go to my neighbor. What, what What the early church did in the 34th century is they did not run away from it, but they actually stepped into it and they became a source of help. When the pagans were throwing the sick into the street, the Christians were picking up the sick and bringing them in and taking care of them. This is a biblical response and a biblical example of what it means to neighbor. If you have your Bibles, again, look at Luke chapter 10. We'll be there today. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that will mean uh, that you will be very familiar with. The context of this is is that a a well-educated lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him a question. 
And he asked him this question after a long discourse. There's a lot in chapter, in chapter 10 of Luke that's really worth looking around, looking at and spending time with. But in typical Jesus fashion, when you ask Jesus a question, he turns around and asks you a question. And that's exactly what he does here. He does it multiple times with this same individual. And in this situation, we find it. So let's get the context of it, beginning in verse 25 of Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's trying to get the big picture solved. He's testing Jesus to make sure Jesus is everything he says he is, everything he appears to be. Because just prior to this, in Luke chapter 10, he declares himself to be one with the Father. So if you're one with the Father, then you're going to be agreeing with the Father. So he tests him, and he puts him out there, and he says, Teacher, what does it take for me to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus do? He turns around, and he asks him, What is written in the law? Now, why is that so significant? He's talking to a lawyer. He's asking him what's written in the law. Why why is that important? Because the law in the New Testament was the Mosaic law. And so if you passed the bar exam in the first century in, in, in Hebrew world, you took it and you were a professional. You were a student of the Old Testament law. You knew the law as good as any theologian of that day. So whenever he said, what is written in the law, what was he also pointing back to? That the same thing that gave people eternal life in the Old Testament is the same thing that gives people eternal life in the New Testament. So just hang on to that thought and let that marinate. And what the lawyer does is he turns around and he, makes a, he, he gives the response. He says, what shall I say well, is, is, is in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's what's written in the law. He said, you got to love God, and you got to love people. you got to love God. Starting with God, it starts with a relationship with God. A vertical line connects us to God. And if we have a love relationship with God, it, we become inseparable. We become connected with the God of the universe. And it is not a law relationship. It is not a rules relationship. It is a love relationship. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means everything is inside of you. Everything that's a part of you, you are in this love relationship, vertical relationship with God. But notice the next thing he says, because that right there, he quotes from the Shema, or the Shema, which is the Old Testament version of the parenting plan for the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's really what we should all model all, our, all of our parenting after is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And that's exactly what he does here. He says it comes down to a love relationship, but then he goes and he he goes over to Leviticus and he quotes from Leviticus. In Leviticus 19.18, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he not only deals with a vertical relationship, but he also talks about horizontal relationships. How you relate to one another comes out of how you relate to God. It's not how you relate to one another connects you to God. It's how you relate to God spills over into how you relate to one another. And if this is right and this is wrong, then something's wrong. We've got to get this right first, and then after we get this right, we're going to be able to love like nobody else. That's why in the third century, that's why in the fourth century, that's why Martin Luther and Blue Bonnie Plague would put his little life on the line. It's because he was loving his neighbor as he loved himself. What did I say in the very beginning? There is a biblical model, a biblical precedence, a biblical standard for what it means to be a neighbor. 
Jesus goes on and he tells a story. In typical Jesus fashion, he was a storyteller. He was not just a storyteller. He was a master storyteller. 48 different times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke does the word parable mentioned, is the word parable used, referring to a form, a method of teaching of Jesus' storytelling, okay? A, a parable was an earthly story, but it had a heavenly meaning. It was a, it was a story that was not just to, there to, in, to entertain us, like watching Tiger King or something like that. It, it was not that at all. It was actually to inform us and to transform us. When Jesus would tell a story, it was to download information, but it was also to transform our lives. It was an earthly story, but it had a heavenly meaning. And what he does is he goes into this heavenly meaning or this earthly story and he unpacks it. And we'll unpack it here in just a moment. But Jesus also spoke in propositional statements. And in the propositional statements, he would make it very clear, point blank. And in John chapter 13, verse 35, he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Everyone, here's an acid test. Here's a litmus test. Here's a way you can measure or not if somebody is my disciple. Here it is. You ready? How well do they love one another? literally from the Old Testament to the New Testament, if we have a right relationship with God, I'm a disciple of God, I will have a horizontal good relationship, a right relationship with those around me. The vertical impacts the horizontal in every way. I love God. It causes me to love others. It causes me to love people different than me. It causes not just... what, And so then all of this leads to the lawyer asking Jesus, another question. He asked the first question. Now he's going to turn around and ask another question. Verse 29. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself. So now the focus is off, are you really Jesus? Now he's trying to justify himself because basically Jesus convinced him you're God. Okay. He says, desiring to justify himself, he said, And who is my neighbor? And that becomes, I had to give you the context because that becomes the literal point of the message today. Who is my neighbor? If I'm to love my neighbor as I love myself, and how does that flow? That flows out of a love relationship with God. I have a love relationship with God that uh, of heart, soul, mind, strength, everything is within me. And because I do that, I can now love horizontally. Then I need to be asking the question, who do I love? How do I love them? What does love look like? This, this series of messages is, is love better because I think we need to improve on what the dimensions of love look like because love has been tested. I mentioned last week that divorce rates in the UK have gone up since COVID. Why? It's exposed that we have some pretty weak need love out there. We need to learn how to love better. And what does love better look like is we must, first of all, learn how to love our neighbor. So let's look at verse 30 and let's read really quickly the story that Jesus tells. You'll notice it. There's four characters in the story. Some are named or some are identified. Some are not identified. Jesus replied, a man. That's the first character. He's a traveler, it might say in your Bible. A man was going down the road to Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you were to understand, if you've ever traveled that land, that is a very large descent. Imagine this with me, put it together, 20 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
Yet the descent in altitude, you will drop 3,200 feet in a very short time. You'll go from the mountaintop and city was, Jerusalem was considered a city on a hill to Jericho, which is 900 feet below sea level. It's the last city you come to before you hit the Dead Sea, the lowest point on the earth. So on this windy trail down the mountainside, this guy starts off on this journey. And he fell among robbers, which is the second group of people. We don't know who they are. We don't know who the traveler is. He fell among the robbers who stripped him, dehumanized him, humiliated him, and beat him. And departed, leaving him for dead. They took everything he had, his dignity, his place in society, his wealth, his security, took it all, ripped it up, and took it away from him and left him to die. Now by chance, a priest, there's the third in the story, was going down the road and he saw by his side, he passed by on the other side. He saw the man laying there bleeding, dying, naked in the street and he passes by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite follows right behind him and he came to the place and he saw him. Both of them saw him, but they passed by on the other side. But here is the final character, the Samaritan. He journeyed and came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, and he pouring oil and wine. And when he, he, uh, he set him on an animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And, and the next day, he took, him, uh, uh, took out two denarii, and he gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whoever or whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor? who fell among the robbers. And he said to them, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to them, go and do likewise. When you look at this passage, again, a very familiar story for many. He qualifies who the neighbor is. So who is your neighbor? I don't just talk about your next door neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Not the person who's sitting in front of you right now. Not the person who works at the desk or at the same office uh, with you, if you even work in an office anymore. Another person who necessarily is in the same school with you. That could be a neighbor, certainly could be a neighbor. But who is your neighbor? Jesus takes the concept of a neighbor as this person who lives in a geographical place in the same zip code, in the same street, in the same address, maybe just a few addresses down from me. And he takes it and he blows it out. He expands it because love better is not this kind kind of love. Love better is this kind of love. Because I love a big God, I can have a big love. Okay? And so as you think about it, what he does is he qualifies who the neighbor is. Number one qualifier is your neighbor is whoever is in your way, on your way. Whoever is in your way, on your way is your neighbor. This was not a planned stopover. This was not a, a, a forethought. This was not a, if this man had known he was going to be beaten, robbed, stripped, left for dead, he would not have gone alone. He'd have had a detail with him. In fact, Jerome calls this 
five centuries later, calls this the bloody way. It was until the 1900s that you had to pay a safety road tax to travel from Jerusalem down to Jericho. That's how dangerous of a road for history upon history for centuries this road has been. This was not the path you had, you chose to take. It was the path you had to take. And so as these people were traveling in this story, we unpack it that there is this priest and the Levite. A priest were the people who would, uh, who would take care of the holy things in the temple. The Levites were those who served beside or were apprentices to the priest. So what we do is we have the story and we have these two godly, religious, knows the scriptures, handles the holy things of God walking on this path, one behind the other. Maybe they were on their journey. Maybe they had finished their religious duties that they normally do. Even in, John, in Luke, it talks about how they, 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 once they finished their duties, they would go back home. So the priest would come from different places. And this guy is now going back home. But they see and they move to the other side. Both the priest and the Levite, they don't move towards, they both see, but they do not move towards, they move to the other side. And see, this is a very telling tale. I've always wondered why they mention the priest, why do they mention the Levites? Because the Levites was behind the priest. The priest was setting the example for the Levites. Remember I said the priest were the protégés to the Levites? The Levites were watching the priest, and if the priest didn't stop, parents, you think your kids aren't watching you? How you respond to your neighbors, the people who get in your way on the way? You are training up the next generation, just like the priest was training up the Levite, to how do you respond to people in need? How do you respond with the cry for help? How do you respond whenever we say out there, hey, we need teachers, we need workers in the field, we need workers in the classroom. Is it one of those things that you excuse off when you get in the car, your kids are registering it? If you're the priest and your kids are the Levites, they're listening, they're watching, they're hearing everything you say. Now look at verse 31. Now by chance, as these guys are traveling, now by chance, This Greek word here is a very interesting word. It's only used a couple of times in the Bible completely, and it means an unexpected conjunction of events, a coincidence or a chance. So as they're traveling, by coincidence or chance, not by God's coincidence, he knows exactly what's going on, and, but by coincidence or chance, they see this situation. I promise you, as it happens in my life as well, it will happen in your life, that many times situations, needs, neighbors, come at the most inopportune times. Situations arise at the most inopportune. COVID is the most, the biggest global disruption of my lifetime. How can I go out of my way, on my way to be with somebody, to walk with somebody? But see, these priests would have to self-quarantine for seven days if they touch this body. If this body's dead, but the thing is, this body isn't dead. This body is alive, but they chose to pretend that it was dead. They chose to ignore it, and they passed by on the other side. See, you may have to quarantine after loving someone, after caring for someone, but what a difference that might make. Totally unexpected thing happened to me a couple of years ago. Somebody comes up to me, 
and gives me $500 in cash. Okay? Now, everyone's ears perked up on that one. Five Benjamin Franklins hit my hand. They didn't make a big deal out of it. They had just gotten the money. They looked at their life. They said, I don't really need this. So I'm going to give it to Mike. And I'm like, okay, what, what do you want me to do with this? He said, no, no, no strings attached. It's just yours. You see a need, you meet a need. Otherwise, it's yours. It's like, oh, my gosh. Now, you got to realize, I'm the spender in the family. She is the saver. She just spent her 2019 Christmas money, her last of it, this week. Okay, this is August. Christmas in August is still happening for Lori. Mine ended probably December 29th, okay? I probably spent the last of mine. So two different people, okay? I could spend those five Benjamin Franklins before the fifth one hit my hand. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, no strings attached. This is a gift. You're giving, this is a gift to me, okay? But I have learned in my spiritual walk with God that God, that God didn't always give me things to end at me. God didn't always bless me to just be a blessing to me. So this is $5,500 is hit in my hand. I can already have it spent in my head. But I knew that, okay, God, I'm going to hold this and I'm going to save it because I don't know what you're wanting me to do with this. And I put it in an envelope and I just began to pray about it. God, what do you want to do? What, 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 what is this for? And I'm thinking for myself, what is this for? Who is this for? I'll ask that one just real quietly, God, in case there's somebody else that needs it worse. And it was like two weeks later, I was talking to a single mom out in our gallery and all the changes and all the financial impact and everything that was going on in their life. And it was like voices, megaphone from heaven. This is why I blessed you. And so it became a real easy pass on the blessing. Why do I tell you that? Not to blow my horn. I promise you, I could have spent that $500 before I got home. But the point is, is that God puts people in our life on our way so that we can be a neighbor to them by chance not by chance by God's orchestrated design number two your neighbor is whoever makes you uncomfortable your neighbor is not just the person who lives close to you, that has all the same interests as you, that likes what you like and that, 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 you, that you do things with. You're a cyclist. You go cycling with them. That's a neighbor. Okay, call it a neighbor. But your neighbor expansion goes beyond that. It's not just somebody you go to the gym with. It's somebody beyond that. It's sometimes the person that makes you uncomfortable. Notice the hero of this story as he's talking to a Jewish lawyer. The hero of this story is a Samaritan. Now, that means nothing to you or me, but this is what it meant in them. And that day and that time, Samaritans were half dogs in the Jewish minds. They were inbred with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They were the ones who came back. They're the ones who weren't clean whenever. They're the ones who were messed up. They're, they're not all pure race like we are. They were considered half dogs. But who is the hero of this story? is a person that this Jewish lawyer would have had prejudices against, would have had ill feelings naturally inbred into his, into his DNA, woven into the fabric of his life. 
But what happens when the Samaritan sees the same bleeding naked body in the street? What happens to the Samaritan? The same bleeding body in the street. He doesn't move away. He moves towards. He was moved with compassion. Love is action. Love is Compassion is love in action. It is whenever love takes on hands. It takes on feet. It takes on ears. It takes on mouths. It takes on something. And let me tell you this. Whenever you look at this, you see Jesus being a person of compassion. Whenever he's looking over the city of Jerusalem, he says they're lost. He was moved with compassion. Compassion is something that very, marks the very heart of God. And it's one of those things that causes Jesus to go to the cross was his compassion for mankind. If you do not know Jesus today, would you, in this room or watching online, would you text GPC Connect to 97000? We want to help connect you to the compassionate, loving God of the universe. Whenever you look at this and you read verse 33, look there. Uh, he says, but the Samaritan was his journey came to where he was. And when he saw him, he didn't move to the other side of the road. He had compassion. It moved in. Jesus brings in these Samaritans into the story so often. He, uh, he said in John chapter 4, that, or he said in John chapter 3, he, he had to go to, or John chapter 4, he had to go to Samaria. He had to go to the place uh, across the tracks. He uses this story in Luke chapter 10. And then even in the Great Commission, one of the top three places he tells his disciples to go is Samaria. Samaria was on the heart of God, even if it wasn't on the heart of the Jewish believers that he was discipling. Why? Because the Samaritans made him completely uncomfortable. But here's the thing. I found this on the web. Excuse me. That was awkward. Uh, uh, Samaritan and Siri sounds a lot alike, I guess. Jesus scandalized. Jesus scandalized the faith. Jesus brought equality back to humanity. Jesus crushes racism, crushes classism, crushes sexism, crushes nationalism. He didn't care if the Roman was in power or if the Greeks were in power. He doesn't really care if America is in power or if China's in power. He is about his name and his kingdom. He crushes nationalism. He crushes fascism. He crushes it. He brings us to all to be one. Colossians chapter 3 verse 11. Here there is neither not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, that's modern day Iran, slave or free, now notice this last statement, Christ is all in all. Christ makes the ground level. That's why if there's a, yes, please, I need some support here. What Jesus does is he brings us all and he calls us humans. 
He brings us together and he causes people made in the very image of God. And Jesus takes all the divisions that are out there and he brings us and he makes us one. And if Paul didn't say it once, he said it twice. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, there is neither Greek nor Jew. Racial divides, they're not any longer. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Rebecca McLaughlin said it like this, the Christian movement is a multicultural, multi-ethnic from the outset. Jesus scandalized his fellow Jews by tearing through the racial and cultural boundaries. His compassion moved him. I've got to point this out as I land this plane here today. Verse 34 to 35, there are nine things. And I'm going to just read them off. You're going to catch them as you go. All right, nine things. Circle them in your Bibles as as we go through this. Nine points of compassion, nine acts of compassion. Notice this. Again, I pointed it out already. He went to him. Instead of the other guys went away from him, he went to him. Number two, he bound up his wounds. He got down in the mud. He got down in the, the, the germ infested wounds. He got down in the dirt of, the, of that person's life and he was willing to touch him. Henry Nouwen said, when we honestly ask ourselves which persons in our lives means the most to us, it's those who instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures are have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. He bound up his wounds. He poured oil on the and wine. Go back to last week, James chapter 5, verse 14. Write that in the margin of your Bibles. He set him on his animal. He was riding on the animal down the, the side of that cliff. Now he gets off and he walks and now this injured man is on his animal. Listen, if you become a neighbor to people who are different than you, if you become a neighbor to people who become, who, who, who you're uncomfortable with, you will have inconveniences that you will face. He brought him to an end. He took care of him. Number seven, he gave them two denarii, basically two days wages. He was going on his journey because he was on his way and he was ministering to him on his way, but he left them with money. Here's two full days wages. Do the math on your wages. Add it all up, divide it by 365. How much would that be? Two full day's wages to take care of this man of a, probably of a different ethnicity, a different race, a different maybe even religious background. He gave him two denarii. I will, and then he said, I will open up a line of credit. I will repay. And then he said, I will come back. I love that last statement. It's real easy to do good and to walk away. It's really good, easy to buy somebody's meal in, in, the, in, in the Starbucks line and then drive off. I, there's nothing wrong with that. What real neighboring looks like because of the vertical leading into the horizontal, because we love God and we love him with all of our heart, because we love people, we love our neighbors, is we don't just walk away. We stay in their life. We become a part of their life. We become a part of their healing process. We become a part of their journey. And then in verse 36 and 37, he gives us what is called the great compassion. We've seen the great commandment. We've seen the great commission. 
But now we see the great compassion. You go and do likewise. Go and be a neighbor to somebody who is different than you, of a different socioeconomic, of a different skin pigmentation, of a different pedigree, of of a different likeness. Because here's what we must do when we're understanding humanity is that we are all the the children of Adam and the children of Eve. And the division of humanity and races and ethnicities happened in a place called the Tower of Babel. When a nation was in sin and God divides them. We need to go back to Genesis. Because if we go back to Genesis, that we will realize, not because of your skin pigmentation, not because of your class, not because of your religious background, but because you are a human. And because you bear the image of God and the likeness of God, I will be your neighbor. I will love you with no strings attached. Because why do we need to go back to Genesis? Because we cannot go to heaven unless we go back to Genesis. Because when you get to heaven, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, and no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and the peoples and the languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands because worship will happen. In the same way we enter into heaven at the foot of the cross where everything is level, we will enter into heaven and it will be not races, not classes, not, not, not genders and not anything else that divides us in this crazy day that we live in. Not mask wearers or non-mask wearers. Okay. We will come together and we will worship before the throne. Can I get an amen out of that? Yes. Thank you. And if we, the church, do not model a better love, this world will never know the good love of a good, good father. Your neighbor is the person who's in your way on the way. You don't have to go far. You just have to keep going where you're going. And they keep your eyes open. Your neighbor is the person who makes you uncomfortable. Go to them. Get involved in their story, in their life, in their healing process. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, You set the standard of love. You modeled it by making the ground at the foot of the cross as level and straight across for every tribe, tongue, people, nation of this world. And Lord, there's not one people that you love more than any other people. There's not one race. There's not one class. There's not one nationality. There's not one passport. There's not one thing. Lord, you are a God of all humanity. We are all made in your image. We are made bearing your likeness. So, Lord, anybody that is hurting in my circles, anybody that's hurting on my way, anybody who is in pain and sickness, anyone who is suffering, Lord, help me to be a neighbor. 
because I have a vertical relationship with you, because it is right and it is good, I cannot help but have a horizontal relationship with my neighbor. Father, help us to get uncomfortable with love. Help us to get uncomfortable with who we love. For God so loved the world. 